John chapter 4 and verse 43. Let's pray together. Father, right now as we open your word, we just pray that you would speak to us. We know that your word is powerful, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it doesn't return void. Father, you're the creator of the universe. You love us. You desire to cause us to know more about you. So we do pray that we would grow in the knowledge of Jesus through this time in your word. May we be refreshed. May we be fed. May we be built up. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in our study of John, we looked at the woman at the well, the woman that was coming seeking a drink of water, and she found living water and shared it with her friends. And that's where we pick up John's narrative of Christ's life. So join me in verse 43 of John 4. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. So Jesus stayed two days there in Samaria, ministering to these new converts in the Lord. Now, sometimes I think it's just fresh to look at things from a biblical perspective, because we get so used to how we do things when someone comes to know Christ as their Savior, and there's nothing wrong with it. When people come to know Christ, we want to get them plugged into a new believers class, a Christianity Explorer class. We want them to fill out a response card and follow up with them, and it's all for the right motivation so that we can help them grow and get discipled in Jesus Christ. And I think that that's important, but we need to understand that not all people in scripture had that opportunity and they did just fine. Jesus ministered to these guys for two days and then he said, see you later. I've got more work to do, trusting that the work was going to continue in their life. Why? Because it's more based upon God than anything else. And as soon as someone receives Christ, Christ in them is the hope of glory. So the best case scenario is somebody having the opportunity to plug into discipleship. But even if they don't, it's still worthwhile to share the gospel and the power of the gospel, and trust Christ's work in their life. What is he was faithful to begin, he'll also be faithful to complete. So Jesus was there two days, and then he keeps going. In verse 44, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem, At the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. Jesus here is being referring to his hometown, Nazareth. If you're going up from Samaria, you come to Nazareth. And Jesus didn't stay there very long because they didn't believe and trust in him. You can cross reference this to Matthew 13. And there Jesus says and writes that there was no mighty work that he could do in their midst because of unbelief. They looked at Jesus just as the carpenter down the road. They'd seen him grow up. They knew Jesus' sisters, and they knew his half-sisters, half-brothers, and that familiarity with Jesus birthed this contempt, and they didn't expect or believe God to do any work in their life. I find this convicting and challenging. Is there work that God wants to do in our lives in the miraculous way, but we don't believe he can do it? Because we've become familiar with him. In some way, he's kind of become the Sunday school Jesus. You know, we've reduced him down to what our image or perspective of Jesus is. And that'd be a sad thing, wouldn't it? If we missed out on what Christ wanted to do in our lives, what he wanted to do in our church, if we didn't believe and trust that he wanted to do that work. I'm convinced that God wants to do a lot more in my life than I'm willing many times. 
it's on my part of being unwilling to see his work come into fruition. In verse 46 down to verse 54, we see the second sign in the Gospel of John. The first sign was when Jesus turned water into wine. There's only seven that are listed in the Gospel of John. And tonight we're going to study two of them. And this is the second. So Jesus came to Canaan of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So Capernaum, being at the Sea of Galilee, this nobleman has a son who who is sick, and Jesus is traveling and is in the region of Canaan. In verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This nobleman has a lot to lose by pursuing Jesus Christ. His reputation's on the line. Jesus is beginning to be judged and persecuted by the Jews, but he doesn't care. Why? Because his son's about the point of death. And there's an interesting thing that happens with parents with their sons and their daughters. And we're experiencing this in our own home. We're thankful for it that we've got three girls and one boy that we're getting to experience both genders. We thought we would have four girls. After you've had three girls, the statistics are that you're going to have a fourth girl. And there's something that little girls bring out in dads. You know, they kind of bring out just that princess response and you hold them and you rock them and you cuddle them. And that's a lot of fun. I think all dads with daughters recognize that. And now with my little son, he's bringing out like a little bit more of the warrior response. Like, hey, this is going to be fun to go hunting someday and, you know, just do all the man sounds with them. And my reaction is to want to wrestle them a little bit and throw them around and all those kind of things that happen between fathers and sons. And it brings out different things for my wife with the daughters and, and with the son. And when I'm studying scripture, I just try to put myself in the people's shoes that are going through this. And this nobleman has a relationship with his son. This is his son. He's watching his son be born, you know, watching his son take his first steps, learn the Hebrew alphabet go to school, all the different things that take place in life, and knows the details about his son's life. And now all of a sudden, his son's at the, the point of death. And as a pastor walking with people through their points of pain, it doesn't get worse than this. There, there's nothing more terrifying than to look into the eyes of a parent as they realize that they're probably going to lose one of their children. And it's not a point that any of us ever want to be in or ever anticipate to be in. And this guy's head is spinning. He's wondering what to do. I'm sure they've exhausted going to the medical doctors. And like, we're going to Jesus. We don't care what people think about Jesus any longer. We believe that he can help us. And a lot of times it's our point of crisis. It's the crisis of faith that brings us to Christ. When we've exhausted the other resources, where there's no other place to go, you've heard it, I've heard it, maybe you've experienced it. A lot of people have made a deal with God that says, God, if if you get me out of this, then I'll serve you. It looks like I'm about ready to die or lose this or lose that. And they don't know the Lord as their Savior. And they cry out to God and say, God, if you give me another chance, if you save me, you rescue me, then, then I'll serve you. But there's some kind of crisis. And pain that brings us to the feet of Jesus Christ. And it's our common need for Jesus Christ. So verse 49, or excuse me, verse 48. 
Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Jesus calls them out and saying that you require signs and wonders in order to believe. We can fast forward to the end of the Gospel of John where Thomas, he has this encounter with the Lord in his doubting. And the only reason that he would believe is if he saw and felt the wounds of Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus say to Thomas? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And that's what Christ is looking for. And that's what he's desiring is you may not have all of the signs, but to have faith. And Jesus doesn't say this as a compliment that they needed signs and wonders in order to believe. In verse 49, then the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. The nobleman's like, back to topic. I have a son that's about ready to die. You know, that, that's nice about all the signs and wonders stuff, but could you please get to my house before he dies? In verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. So he goes from a crisis of faith to being confident in faith. And again, we try to put ourselves in this man's sandals. How hard would it be when Jesus says, I want you to go away because your son's healed. And to trust that and go, okay, he said that my son is healed, so I'm going to move on my way. My tendency would be like, hey, why don't you come with me? I feel a lot better. I'm glad that he's healed and stuff, but why don't you just come with me back to my house? But this man believes, the scripture says, that he believed the word of Jesus Christ at that moment. And he trusted what Christ had said. In verse 41, or 51, And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. So as he's traveling back to his house, the servants come with the good news. Relief over the soul. Nothing like that kind of news. Your son lives. He's been healed from his sickness. In verse 52, Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. So he goes from crisis of faith to being confident in faith and trusting the word of God. Now he has a confirmed faith, doesn't he? That in fact, his son was healed at the very moment that Jesus spoke it. The very moment that he believed and trusted in the spoken word of Jesus Christ. Once his faith is confirmed, then notice what happens. It becomes contagious and his whole household believes. The other siblings, his wife, whoever else was working in the home, because they saw the wonderful works of God before their eyes. In verse 54, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now remember, John told us why he was writing this gospel. So that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And through believing, we would have life in his name. So each of these signs tell us something about Jesus and something to believe and trust in about Jesus. And so here's the lesson for us. That healing and salvation come in our lives by trusting and believing the word of God. God's spoken it. He said it in his word. So we're going to trust it and we're going to believe it. And through believing, then salvation comes into our lives and we have life through his name. When we look in the gospels, I think it provokes the question, does Jesus still heal today? Does he 
bring healing in people's lives today. And absolutely, actually, we're told in the book of James, if anybody is sick among you, to call for the elders of the church and have them anoint you with oil. So if you do that here, we like to do it Old Testament style. So we get a big thing of oil and we just pour it all down your head. (laughs) No, we just get a little bit of oil and, and put it on your head, unless you're really ornery and you need a little extra. So... But you're saying, what's that? Why be anointed with oil? And why does the scripture say to call uh, for the elders? It's it's a faith and obedience to the word of God. And sometimes we do see God heal supernaturally and bring healing into people's lives. And the Lord does that for his glory. So notice that it says not one elder, but call for the elders plural. So no one elder can claim that he's got the special anointing, you know, and everybody's speaking out, seeking out the healing elder at at Rocky Mountain Calvary. If you all pray together, you don't know whose prayer it was. God answered the prayer collectively. But also we've anointed some people with oil and prayed for them, and they've gotten the ultimate healing and gone home to be with the Lord. Did God still heal? Absolutely. He gave them the best healing of all to take them to heaven where they would no longer suffer. And that's God's ultimate intent for our lives. And so we are to ask the Lord to heal. And there'll be times that he heals in this life and there'll be other times that he heals by taking us home to be with the Lord. I do think it's an abuse of scripture to go around telling people, well, if you had more faith, you would be healed or there's unconfessed sin in your life. And so that's why you're not being healed of your cancer because we see the apostle Paul and you can look it up for yourself in 2 Corinthians he had a thorn in his flesh it was something in his physical body and he prayed three times that the Lord would heal him deliver him and each time God said no my grace is sufficient for you my my strength is made perfect in weakness now if you want to argue that the apostle Paul didn't have enough faith then good luck I'll leave you on your own for that one he had faith that God could heal But it takes even greater faith sometimes to trust that God may not heal in this lifetime so that he can be glorified through the infirmity. Are you familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata? She's in a wheelchair and she definitely has physical infirmity. But God has used her life in such a powerful way through the suffering that she goes through. And it takes great faith of Johnny Erickson Tata to continue to walk with the Lord and declare his glory in the midst of suffering. So we're to pray, we're to ask, Lord, if you want to heal, we believe that you can, but ultimately we're desiring your will in this situation. Let's go into chapter five and we see this third sign that's given to us. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So geographically, he's going down. But whenever you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up. That's how it's always referred to. Now, there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porches. So if you can, try to imagine the old ancient city of Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what this would have looked like in Jesus' day, but we have a pretty good idea. In fact, the pool of Bethesda has been dug up. When we were in Israel this last time, we got to walk through it, which was a neat experience. But as you're coming into this city of Jerusalem, it's this old walled city, and there's several gates. And one gate is just for the sheep. This is where that you would bring in all of your sheep as you're coming to sell them in Jerusalem. And the pool of Bethesda is right as you come through the sheep gate. And maybe you needed a nice bath after dealing with all of these sheep. I don't know. 
could be kind of a stinky gate, but we'll leave it at that. This is the gate in which Jesus entered in verse 2 and comes to the pool of Bethesda. In verse 3, In these days a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So everyone was there with physical infirmity. They're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed. They're waiting for the water to stir. First one in is healed. That's what they're believing. And verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. We don't know if he hung out at the pool every day, but we do know that he was there quite often, and he had this infirmity for 38 years. In verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, and that stands out to me, Jesus saw him. Of all of the paralyzed, the lame, the, the blind, he sees this one particular man. And this shows God's work in people's life. Jesus doesn't come to the pool and say, everybody up. Today, everybody's healed, the blind, everybody sees. He sees one guy that he wants to do a work in his life on this particular day, and he's the one who is going to be healed. This stands out to me just about the character of God. Because how many people want to go hang out where the really sick people are? Not very fun. Not, not People aren't signing up to, to do that. But God has a heart for those that are broken. And he sees the, the lame part of our lives, the blind, the broken part of our lives. Continuing in verse 6, and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said, do you want to be made well? No, duh. You know, that's why I'm waiting for the stirring of the water and everything. It's like, no, I kind of like to be a cripple the rest of my life. You know, it's, it's pretty awesome. And we have to try to imagine what it would have been like in that time frame to be crippled. Much more difficult than in the day that we live in. Not that it's easy now by, by any means, but even more difficult and challenging with no, no health care, not the same wheelchairs, all the advantages that we have in medicine today. So why would Jesus say this? Because sometimes we get so used to our condition, even though it stinks and it's, it's rotten and it's no fun, we really don't want to change. And a lot of times, God may come to our lives. I think it's very applicable for us tonight. And he says, you know, Eric, do you really want to change? Do you want anything to be different in your life? Or do you want to continue in some of these sinful patterns that you've been on? You've gotten so used to them. You've gotten comfortable with them. And sometimes this sinful behavior, this sinful habit can be so comfortable, we don't want to change anymore. Or we can wrestle with the faith of, could God really change me? Could God really work in this area of my life? I've, I've been this way so long. So it's an important f question for us to consider as well. Do we want God to do a fresh work in our lives tonight? Do we want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. This man doesn't consider the possibility that God in human flesh is right in front of him and Jesus can heal him. Many times we don't see the possibilities that God brings as a solution to a problem or difficulty. All we see is what's been presented to us and what we can understand. I don't have anybody to help me get in the pool first. 
I mean, could you imagine what kind of competition, what kind of madhouse this would be to try to get into the pool? You ever played that game Spoons, the card game, where you got to be the first one to grab the spoon? Anybody played it? Okay. Hey, afterwards in the cafe, we'll try to find some spoons and we'll go for it. So let me explain it a little bit to you. You know, once you get the four cards that all match, let's just say they're all fives, then you just quietly grab a spoon. And once you see one person grab a spoon, then everybody starts to grab spoons, but there's one less spoon than people. So the last two people just start wrestling for the spoon. So I could kind of picture like MMA fighting type of style to be the first one in the pool, right? Like there's a little bubble, boop, you know, or a little stirring in the water and you're like, you know, I got to be the, the first one in. And this is all this guy knows. This is what he sees happening. And so he says, I don't have anybody to help me. I always get beat. Somebody else always beats me into the pool. And verse eight, and Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. There's no long lecture here. There's no commentary. Jesus is just like, now's the time. I want you to get up. I want you to take your bed and I want you to walk. And if you're this man, again, try to put yourself in his shoes. You're thinking, is this some kind of cruel joke? I'm sure he's been made fun of in the 38 years as a crippled man. Is somebody doing this to me again? Obviously, I can't walk. Obviously, I can't get up and take my bed and and go home. But there was something about the way Jesus said it, where he understood that this man's serious. Maybe he looked into Jesus' eyes. There's something different about this person who's, who's talking to me. And this is an important lesson in Scripture, and you may want to write it down, is God's commandments are God's enablements. He will ask us to do things repeatedly in Scripture that's way beyond anything that we could ever do in our own power and might and strength. You look at the Christian life, the way he's wanting us to live, the kind of character we're supposed to have, and we can't do it. And that's when the Christian life can get really frustrating, where we try to take God's commandments and do it apart from his strength. So this is what happens in our lives. When we choose to obey, when we make the choice of the will, we say, God has told me to do this. I'm going to step out and I'm going to do it. Then we trust that he's going to give us the power, the supernatural power. And it's both in the positive, you know, like God's calling me to share my faith. I don't have the strength to do that. I'm going to step out to do that and watch God give me the supernatural power. And it can also be God's told me not to do this over here. I don't have the strength to do that, but I'm going to make the choice with my will and watch God work. He had to choose with his will first before he saw the results. That's the challenge. Jesus wanted that choice of faith before the miracle took place in his life. In verse 9, And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked, and the day was the Sabbath. Now, if you're taking notes, this is important to understand because this is the day in Christ's life where they really wanted to kill him. So if you're writing down saying, this is when they started to oppose the, the Son of God. And it's because... Not that he did the miracle on the Sabbath, but that he said, take up your bed and walk. Go ahead and carry your bed back home with you. And to the religious leaders, that was breaking the Sabbath. That was work on the Sabbath day. It wasn't God's interpretation of the law, but it was their interpretation of the law. And when the Sabbath day was broken in their mind, that's when they started to persecute Jesus Christ. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful to carry your bed. 
man, these guys are just totally missing it. This guy has been crippled for 38 years, and all they do is like, did you see that he carried his bed? That's a regulation in the Talmud in 5,344, thou shall not carry thy sleeping bag too far, you know. It's like, man, they totally missed God's heart and what God was doing. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? Religion, a religion apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ can get so corrupt and we can miss the heart of God and miss the point of what God is doing. And these guys are in that boat and they've totally missed what Jesus has just done. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so this guy's saying, this wasn't my idea. The, the guy that healed me told me to take my bed and walk. And they answered and said, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. So Jesus healed him, but never introduced himself to this man. Verse 14, Afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus wanted to do a physical work in this man's life, to give him his ability to use his legs again, but he also wanted to do a work in this man's life spiritually. And I think that's always the case with God. You know, when God meets our needs, when he answers a prayer, when he does bring physical healing, he wants that physical blessing for us to receive it and be thankful, but he's also teaching us something about himself. For some reason, this man's sinful choice resulted in him being crippled. And we don't know what that sinful choice was. But sinful choices have natural consequences, don't they? And something had happened in this man's life to the result of his sin was him being crippled. And Jesus comes to him. And can't you just kind of picture Jesus sliding up to him? And the guy recognizes, hey, this is the guy that just healed me. And Jesus puts his arm around him and says, hey, don't keep going down the same path that you were on because something worse could happen in your life. And every time that he's walking, going, oh man, I've got a second chance on life. I've got a new path that Jesus is taking me on. In verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. I wonder if he realized what that little conversation would result for Jesus. You know, hopefully not, but he goes and tells the Jews Jesus has made me well. I think it's well intending. He's just so excited about what Jesus has, has done in his life. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. Ridiculous. They're ready to put together a plot of murder because Jesus had healed this man and had him take his bed and walk and go home. Jesus told us in John 15 verse 20, that we're not greater than Jesus. We know that. We understand that. And if this is how they treated our master, then this is how they're going to treat us as well. This is the amazing thing about Christ. He did good. He was good. He's everything good. And the world didn't want him. And they crucified him. So there'll be those times in our lives that you'll be persecuted for righteousness sake. You'll do good. You'll follow in Christ's footsteps. And you'll go, why did this result in this kind of rejection? Why are you so mad at me? Why do you not want me in your life? And all of a sudden it goes, oh yeah, this is what Jesus told us about. That as we walk in his footsteps, that we too will be rejected. On the encouraging side, if it's for righteousness sake, we know it's in the right direction. 
This next section is wonderful and powerful because Jesus is explaining to his adversaries and he opens up and he gives us a great window of his relationship with the Father. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said, My Father has been working until now and I've been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus' answer to their objection about him healing on the Sabbath day, he's saying, look, my father's working, so I'm working as well. And notice what he said. He said, my father. He didn't say our father. And by saying my father, he's saying, I am the son of the father. And in the mind of the Jews, by saying that, Jesus was saying that he was equal with God, that he was God because he was God's son. He was deity. And this, of course, angered the Jews in such a great way. And this shows us the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. He's saying, my Father. To where there's three distinct persons, but yet one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So the Father's working on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, too, is working on the Sabbath day. Could you imagine if God took a break or God took a nap or God went on vacation or he's like, I'm tired of holding all things together or stopped pouring out grace to bring salvation in, in people's lives? And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm just mirroring my father. I'm doing exactly what my father does. And, and he tells us his dependency, that he can do nothing of himself and he only does what he's seen the Father do. And this hit me. It's worth meditating upon. There's a world lifetimes to meditate just in this one verse. If Jesus, who is God, chooses to do nothing apart from the Father and models the Father, how much more so for us? For us to try to not do anything independent of God. Have you noticed in Scripture God's really down on pride? Because pride is independence from God. Pride is saying, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. I've got this one. And the Lord doesn't want that. He wants humility and dependence upon the Lord. And for us, like Jesus, to say, I'm going to model the Father. I'm going to depend upon the Father. I'm not going to try anything on my own. I'm going to rely upon His strength. And I'm going to try to model my life after who I know the Father to be. Jesus does this in such a perfect way that Hebrews tells us He's the express image of the Father. You, what's the Father like? Well, look at Jesus, because he's a perfect representation of the Father. So Jesus' relationship, Jesus' dependency, and then his knowledge in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So the Father and the Son, they have this complete openness and this complete transparency where the Father is shown everything to the Son. And the reason that he's shown it to the Son is so the Son can show it to the world and we can marvel at the glory of the Father. And there's the depth here of God, that he is three distinct persons, but yet he, he's one. And we see this knowledge that Jesus has as he's received it from the Father. In verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, 
that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. The position of Jesus. Let's track what we just read. In verse 21, it says, The Father raises the dead, and he's given this to Jesus, that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. The Father's not going to do the judging. Jesus is going to do the judging. When Jesus returns, he does what? He judges the world. He comes in judgment, not in salvation. Verse 23 is very important. Because of Christ's position as God's son, Jesus is saying you can't honor the father unless you honor the son. And that's true in family, just in family dynamics. Like if you really want to offend the father, then be really mean to the son, you know? If you really want to offend the husband, then be a jerk to the wife. Don't play this stupid game of saying, I'm going to be really nice to the husband and then be really mean to the wife and think that that's going to get you very far, right? If you want to honor, then you honor the whole family. And here's Jesus saying, I'm one with the father and you've got to honor the son. And this would be difficult for the Jews who are hearing this because they don't believe that Jesus is God. And there's a lot of people that are into the father, aren't they? But they don't believe Jesus is God. They appreciate Jesus. They say he's a prophet. They say he's a great guy. And they believe in the Father. They believe in what they say would be the one true living God. But they don't believe that Jesus is God. And this very clearly shows us you don't honor the Father at all unless you honor the Son. In verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. There's some that will propagate this idea that Jesus doesn't teach a salvation by grace. That he teaches a salvation by works, and the epistles teach a salvation by grace. But were you here for John 3? What did John 3 tell us? That salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, John 3, 16. What is this verse? Maybe underline it and know it. Tell us. It says, I say to you, him who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment as passed from death to life. That sounds like grace to me, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like works. The works flow out of the grace. The works flow out of a, a true belief in Jesus Christ as we've received this gift of salvation, but we don't, don't earn or deserve our salvation. In verse 25, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You're saying, well, that sure sounds like a works-based salvation. Well, hang on a second. What does it mean? to do good from Christ's perspective. Turn over to chapter 6 and look at verse 29. Just one more chapter over. We'll look at this next week, but for the sake of our Bible study tonight, our Bible study, let's look at verse 29 of chapter 6. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. What's the work of God? You believe in Jesus. 
that he's God, that he died for your sins and rose again. So to do good from Christ's perspective is to receive the one who was sent, Jesus Christ. Let's try to put what we just read in perspective in just a moment. There's going to be a day when the graves are going to be opened. (laughs) Spooky, right? And Jesus says that some will be to resurrection of life and there will be some to the resurrection of condemnation based on what they do with Jesus, whether they've received him or reject him. To receive him is to do good. To reject him is to do evil. And then they're in that eternal state, eternal life or eternal condemnation and eternal separation. All of a sudden, it causes this life to bring about a lot of meaning. Do you know Christ? Is he your savior? Have you received him? Do you believe in the one whom the father has sent? And if so, then are we trying to bring as many people along with us as possible? Looking forward to that day of that resurrection of life. It also provokes a question, doesn't it? So is Jesus teaching soul sleep? That you go to just your grave and you stay there until this ultimate resurrection of life? We find that Paul wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as soon as you die, you go home to be with the Lord. But we receive our resurrected body on this day when Christ raises everybody up. So is there a period of time where our spirits are in heaven without a body? Possibly yes, but I think time is different in heaven. I think it's much more of an eternal now. Peter gives us an illustration that a thousand years to the Lord is just a day. You know, that we go through a thousand years and it's just one day to to the Lord. His perspective on time. And that's not even a mathematical equation. It's just saying it's a whole different deal. So let's just say somebody is, have their spirit in heaven and they're waiting for their glorified body. It might be a millisecond because you're dealing with eternity. How do you even put that into perspective? But what a glorious thing if you know Christ as your Savior. What a sobering thing if you don't know the Lord. Here's Christ's mission. We're really getting a great knowledge of Jesus and who he is and what's important to him in verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. There he says it again. And if Jesus says it, I can do nothing of myself, how much more so for us? As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus is life. It's the essence of who he is. And his mission in life wasn't to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. Have you noticed that we're born with a will? And some people talk about strong-willed children and complacent children. And can we just be honest? Every child has a strong will. Have you really ever met a complacent child? Anybody who's thinking and breathing has a will, you know? And so we've got this desire inside of us and we've got things that we want and we figured out how to manipulate and sometimes cry and sometimes scream and sometimes pout to get what we want. And it's me and it's all about me. And I even came out with a worship album called me, you know, it's all about me for you to do things my way. Right. And we kind of start to live our lives like that. And we go, this is great. I love this Christianity stuff. It's, it's me. It's me all the time. And God to do No, no, it's not that it at all, right? Christ 
is life. I think that I know that he experienced the greatest life possible. Scriptures tell us he was anointed with gladness over all of his fellows. Why? Because he didn't live for himself. He lived for the will of the Father. And the same thing's going to happen to us. You know what the quickest way to be bummed out and be depressed is think about ourselves. That's super depressing, right? And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and it's spiral thinking before you know it. I'm just depressed and depressed thinking about me, right? And then what happens when we get our eyes off of ourselves and we begin to do the will of the Father? We are filled with joy. But it's a daily battle, isn't it? It's moment by moment throughout the day saying, I'm not living for myself. I'm not living for my will. I'm living for the will of the Father. And Jesus said this, if you desire to have life, if you desire to come after me, then deny yourself, lose your life for my sake and follow me. That's giving up our will to do the will of the Father. The more days we can surrender our will and take on the mission of Jesus, the more joy and the more glory that God will receive. We end the chapter tonight with four witnesses, four witnesses of Jesus. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. From the Old Testament, there has to be at least two or three witnesses for something to be true. So Jesus is going to give us four John in his writings, being the Gospel of John, the Epistles, First and Second, Third John, and the Book of Revelation, he uses the word witness or testify in the Greek 136 times. This is a theme for John, the, the testimony and the witness of Jesus. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. So the first witness is John the Baptist. He bore witness of Jesus Christ. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus is saying John's testimony doesn't do anything for me because I don't live off of the validation of man, but it's beneficial to you. I bring up John's testimony so that you might be saved. Speaking still of John the Baptist, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. They rejoiced. These religious leaders were excited about John the Baptist at first. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Oh, church, this is awesome. This gets me so excited to think about this. Jesus says, my works testify of me that I'm God, that I am the Messiah, that I'm the Son of God. And what do you think of when you think of the works of Jesus? Well, healing the guy at the pool of Bethesda, the water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000, all of these that are given to us, all of the healings, but all of this is leading up to one great miracle. The grandiose miracle of all miracles, it's when Jesus died upon the cross, paid the price for sin, the veil of the temple is torn in two, then three days later, just as he predicted, he rose from the dead, That's the work of Jesus Christ. All of it's the work of Jesus Christ. The miracles, but the miracles are just a little bit of a teaser. It's just a little bit of an appetizer of what Jesus was going to do on the cross through his death and resurrection. And his works testify that he is the Christ. Think of all of others in history that have claimed to be God. 
Did they predict their own death, how they would die? Did they predict their own resurrection and then raise themselves from the dead? Jesus did that. His works point to the fact that he's God. In verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So his works testify of him. John the Baptist testify of him. But also the Father testifies of Jesus. In verse 38, But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent. Him you do not believe. And so even though the Father had spoke at the baptism of Jesus Christ, these men didn't receive it. In verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So what are the witnesses that Jesus is God? Well, John the Baptist, his works, the Father, and also the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures prophesying of Jesus. And so many things are fulfilled from the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. And so you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of Jesus. The scriptures are very important. But the scriptures don't save you. It's Jesus who saves you. And these guys knew the scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus. They'd missed the whole entire point of the meaning of the scriptures. So we go on in verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. This is worth pondering. You can study the Bible, know the Bible, teach the Bible, but not be saved. Why? If you don't come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've met people like this. I've met a few. They've read the Bible front to back multiple times, 10, 15, 20 times. They know the scripture really well. But when you tell them their need for a savior and they're a sinner, they get offended and look at you all backwards. And they go, no, 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 I don't, I don't need Jesus. Well, you know the scriptures, but you didn't get the point of the scriptures. It's Jesus. Or someone's read and studied the scriptures and they've read it front to cover, but all they have is objections. And they're shooting holes in the Bible. Like, good for you. Let's go through and look at your objections. But just because you've studied the scriptures doesn't mean that you know Jesus. So this is an important thing for us. Just keep in mind as you study the scriptures, because I know you're committed to the scriptures, is as you're reading the scriptures, is it taking you into deeper knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ? Because if not, we're missing it. If we're just the Bible facts guy, you know, if we're just the one that's a Bible encyclopedia, what does the scripture tell us? That love edifies, but knowledge puffs up, you know? We don't want to just become prideful in Bible knowledge. We want to know more of Jesus Christ. In verse 41, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, him you will receive. That's interesting. They don't receive the one who the Father sent. But if someone comes in their own name, if they come in pride and arrogance, then that's somebody that they would receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? And do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, and whom you trust. The law is given for a purpose to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And these guys didn't get the point 
of coming to Christ. So they're trying to come to God through the law, and the law would judge them. If people don't receive grace through Jesus Christ, then they'll have to answer to the law, and the law would be the one who accuses them. This is important to understand when we think about eternal judgment. God's saying, look, you can receive my son or you can live a perfect life. Okay, you didn't want my son. Let's see how you did on on the perfect life. Well, you didn't do very good on the perfect life. Here was the law that was given to you. Well, here's the punishment of the law. Here's your natural consequence of not wanting to receive the free gift. So someone chooses of themselves their eternal destiny. In verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So he's saying, if you truly believed Moses, then you would believe me, because Moses was pointing to me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now this is not really that offensive to us, but if you get given your whole entire life to studying the law and fulfilling the minute detail of it, this is extremely offensive. Jesus is saying, you don't believe the law. If you did believe the law, then you would receive me. So we've went through a lot tonight. You guys did good. You know, we went through a chapter and a half. Let me just try to bring some application, and and hopefully more so through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' hometown, there's something missing there. There's one quick verse, because they didn't believe in Jesus. So there are no signs that were done in Nazareth. There's no miracles done at Nazareth. What's missing in my life based on not trusting and believing. I've got a nobleman who's at a crisis and he comes to Jesus. What crisis are you at in your life? You're saying, well, it's not that big. My son's not on his deathbed, or maybe he is. God cares about our broken hearts, no matter how big or small the crisis is. And what I've found that's unique about trial is different things break us in different ways. So are you bringing it to Jesus? Are you coming to Jesus? And as we study his word, may we believe it. I know that's so simple, but may we be like the nobleman. When Jesus speaks, we believe it. Is there something that's been cooking for 38 months, 38 years, that's paralyzed us? And as we come to the communion table, Jesus would whisper in our ear and say, hey, is this a normal Wednesday night? Or are you ready to deal with this? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to continue in the bitterness? Are you ready for a change? I'm here to meet you. And we go to the Lord, well, these are my possibilities. And the Lord's going, no, I have a whole nother thing that I want to do in your heart, in your life. And it's his supernatural touch and work in our lives. So let's come.